Welcome to Suede. My name is Sarah Osteen, and I am very lucky today to be speaking with Cheryl Kaiser, who is the executive director of the Lewis Institute and the Babson Social Innovation Lab at Babson College. She's been in this role since 2009 and has had an interesting career uh, in academia uh, before that. I got I received my MBA at Babson in a long time ago, 2003, <laughs> and uh, I have been lucky to, to make some connections with Babson. So I'm, I'm eager to talk with Cheryl today. So Cheryl, thanks so much for joining oh, me. Oh, Sarah, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm, I'm pleased. So, you know, the, the focus of our conversation today is really around uh, the influence of social innovation and how are you working to influence people through the Lewis Institute? Uh, that's a great question. So as you said, I've been here going into my 10th year. And uh, for the audience, just to remember that Babson College is only a business school, undergraduate, graduate, and exec ed. So we don't have a lot of other disciplines to draw from. And when this gift was given to Babson College, its uh, donor really wanted to make sure that, that Babson students really understood the importance of social innovation and its influence, that it wanted Babson to be known around the world as much for social innovation and social impact as it was for what it was doing economically with business impact. So actually, when the uh, Lewis Institute started, the then President Len Schlesinger, I believe, reformulated the mission, if you will, to say that Babson College will educate leaders to create great economic and social value. And the Lewis Institute adds the word simultaneously because to uh, create economic and social value simultaneously is a challenge. So when you said to me, what were the challenges we faced is that when I came here, when I put the shingle out of the Institute for Social Innovation, many people thought that really what I was about was helping our students start a not-for-profit or to go into not-for-profits. And while I think that's fine and that's good, that was not really our focus. Our focus quickly became, how do you use the power of business and entrepreneurship to actually solve societal dilemmas, of which there are many? And I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we really believe that social impact happens when you are addressing one or more of those goals, both through markets, as well as through the social sector, government sector, and civil society. So the challenge was how to engage students around something that was not uh, just about a not-for-profit, but that they could actually use this mindset and understand that they could create social innovation inside of companies and they could start them in startups and they could also be social innovators in many sectors of our society because it was a mindset and it was a way of seeing problems. This is great. For those people who aren't familiar, Babson has a, a big reputation as being um, a great business school uh, with a specific focus around entrepreneurship. So I guess I can imagine that you're not necessarily fighting that theme, but you're trying to figure out how you can sort of simultaneously fit in there. That is correct. That is correct. And, you know, it's not only a challenge for Babson, I think it's a challenge for the world. Um, probably people might have read that you know, a year ago, uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, put out a letter to CEOs saying, contribute to society uh, and connect to society or risk not getting our investment. And he was really saying we need to have businesses, you know, have a purpose and live into that purpose of not just creating profits, but also 
creating social value. And this year, he went even further. So we take that very, very seriously. We take it seriously that you can't have good businesses in an un, and an, you can't have healthy businesses in an unhealthy world. And if we look at the 17 sustainable development goals, which we like to say is one of the biggest to-do lists on the planet, we really have a market opportunity. In fact, I think it's a $13 trillion market opportunity to create social innovation responses to both business and social dilemmas and opportunities. How would you go about defining a healthy business? I think a healthy business is one that starts with a very uh, a very important purpose and mission for what it does. So uh, when it creates its purpose and its purpose is both economic and social, not just economic and not just about only seeing the shareholder as the only stakeholder, but seeing the environment, your employees, your fence line community, your broader global community as stakeholders. When you create a purpose around whatever your product or service is, that purpose, when it has social and economic value simultaneously considered, actually becomes a roadmap for how you behave. And so if you look at companies like Patagonia or you look at companies like Unilever, or you look at social businesses like Grayston Bakery, the first open hiring uh, business in the country, these have very, very discreet and very specific purposes, and all the behaviors mobilize around that for both economic and social good. Patagonia is always the poster child for what a lot of our students want to create. And from the day they started, that was very purposeful around what they cared about. And protecting the environment was really important to them because of the business they're in and the role that the outdoors and the natural environment plays, uh, you know, plays into their business and to their customers. Yeah. I mean, anybody who's heard the interview on how I built this with the um, the founder of Patagonia, you know, it's hard not to get excited about that organization uh, based on kind of the way he talks about it. So uh, that's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, and good companies are transparent companies. And it doesn't mean that the transparency means that every company is sharing every detail. I don't think that's what people want a transparent company to be. Transparency basically uh, provides the context for your decisions. And so it's not about every level of detail, it's a context for making decisions. And when companies are transparent and purposeful, they, they you know, tend to actually reap a return on that investment. A couple of years ago, we did, under the support of Verizon and Campbell Soup Company, we did a project called Project ROI, looking at the the return on investment of social and environmental programs inside of large companies. And it was really, and not that other people haven't done a fantastic job of trying to do that, but some of the CFOs were saying, we still, we understand the impacts of these programs. We still really don't understand the return on investment. And we did a meta-analysis and found that the companies that actually do reap a return on investment for these programs actually do things very, very differently. They manage it differently. They communicate it differently. They uh, embed it differently in their companies. And when done right, you actually do reap a return on your investment for those social programs and environmental programs to the point where you know you can ask for premium price you can attract better employees you can you have better relationships with your uh, all your stakeholders so there is something to it 
Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned a variety of reasons why it makes sense for organizations to consider this. Uh, I guess maybe I should back up and, and ask, you know, how did you get into get interested in this concept of social innovation? Well, prior to coming here, I was helping lead one of the largest organizations around uh, a research center called the Center for Corporate Citizenship at Boston College, where we built the capacity through exec ed, teaching companies how to create strategies around corporate social responsibility, corporate citizenship. From, for about 14 years, I did that. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot about the changing role of business in society and lots of factors contributed to that. So the center really was committed to helping corporate executives and particularly then corporate foundations and corporate social responsibility executives, how to really help their companies manage and create strategies and embed corporate social responsibility and corporate citizenship into their operations and into what they do, because the world was changing and the expectations on business were increasing. And as the expectations on business were increasing, the actual role of government and religious institutions and civil society was decreasing. So people were looking to business to solve some pretty big problems. The research that we showed year in and year out around where do corporations give the bulk of their philanthropic dollars. For years, it was always in education and then healthcare and the environment and followed. But so if you ask consumers and you ask people, what, you know, do they believe that business has a role in solving problems? The majority of people believe that business has a role in solving problems. So that role changed. That wasn't the role of business, you know, 50 years ago. But the world has changed and the expectations on business have changed and our social contract with business has changed. Yeah. Do you have any examples of sort of how our social contract with business has changed? Well, I think that we see it, you know, we see it every day in advertising and the way that companies are showing up. You know, we I do a class here and I remember after uh, after the election 2016 or 2017, the Super Bowl ads, you probably remember that year, all the Super Bowl ads were really addressing pretty big social issues, whether it was Anheuser-Busch dealing, you know, bringing up the immigration issue or Audi was dealing, dealt the issue on that ad was about gender and Coca-Cola did an ad about diversity and inclusion. And if you look at the content of those ads, uh, and if you look at the content of the Nike ad with and I'm blanking on the football player who knelt, who who took on uh, a knee. But if you look at these companies, they're expressing their values now, and they know that their customers want them to express their values. Those are all values-based advertising, and it's where companies are trying to take a stand. You know, there's a lot about companies and brands taking stands because customers want brands to take a stand. Now, should they is another question. When you look at the ad. Kaepernick ad, I think yeah. it is, um, um, you know, taking taking a knee. Nike wasn't saying one way or another whether they supported uh, kneeling or not. They were saying our values are just do it and giving people the power to just do it. And so I think that when and they saw a huge uh, win in doing that. You know, there's a Gillette ad, ad out now about men. You know, it's still, the jury's still out whether that was uh, helpful or not helpful. Mm -hmm. But I think companies more and more are taking stands because the people that work for them 
and their customers are expecting they take some kind of stand on the environment, on things that matter to them. You know, I look at the number of companies and many of them uh, have signed on to really make gains on the UN Sustainable Development Goals because that's really important to them. It's important to their customers. It's important to how they do business. It's important to the planet. And we're no longer separate from each other. We're all really in this together. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't remember growing up like in the 80s hearing that worrying about what companies contributed to what politicians, for example, that just wasn't right. information that was really made public or that or maybe that people cared about even. Well, and remember that the, th- the thing that has made the biggest difference for everybody is that there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide anymore, that social media has become our way of communicating. So unfortunately, companies lost their ability to control their marketing a lot, you know, when social media became so much a part of how we're influenced, because no matter what you do, you have one customer or a group of customers and you say something wrong. And in two seconds, you can't control, control the flow of that influence throughout your customer base or the world. So I think the the internet and social media has made it really important for companies to think about their presence in the world and what they're doing uh, about that. And they also have the most important lever for change. You know, if you look at any of the global goals from climate change to infrastructure, to gender, to ending poverty, to life underwater, any of those goals, businesses have an important lever to use. And not just because it's uh, socially important, but there are also business opportunities. The future business opportunities will be looking at the social dilemmas and how we how we create solutions and then use technology to scale those solutions, whatever that those dilemmas might be. Yeah, like you said, there's a much more awareness as we go forward, and I, <clears throat> I imagine that will only continue to grow. Just going back to to you for a moment too, it, you know, is there something about the your outlook on life also that got you interested in social innovation? Is this something you've been interested in for a long time, or? Well, it probably goes back to how I was raised. Both my mom and dad were activists in their own way. My mother was an entrepreneur, and she was a pioneer in the natural food industry back in the late 60s and started one of the first natural food stores and was very, very uh, instrumental in the natural food movement. My brother still carries that legacy on today. My father was a businessman, but he also was a decorated Marine from Iwo Jima, who was one of the first Marines to come out again against uh, the Vietnam War. So they used their platform in some ways to sort of challenge the status quo. So I, and he ran for Congress on that platform against a very hawkish sitting Congresswoman, Margaret Heckler. So uh, I always came from a family that looked at issues that needed to be addressed and always had a voice and put their uh, money where their mouth was and were very, very activists. So I think I sort of got that. I ha- I would say that if I were to define myself that I do like to positively disrupt and I do challenge the status quo a lot, but not just to, sta- to challenge it. You know, when something's not right, I like to try to do something about it. To be able to be in the platform I am right now at the intersection of business and society to try to make some kind of impact and influence our students to do that is such a privileged position to be in. I can't think of a more, for me, 
perfect place to be able to help people practice and understand their influence in being able to use the power of business and entrepreneurship and the power of understanding how to solve social problems as an important lever for the future of our world. So I, I feel so blessed and I do think I thank my parents for uh, positively disrupting the world around them because uh, I definitely caught that bug. <laughs> yeah, what a cool family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to mention that my grandmother, uh, and I'm not a youngster, my grandmother uh, in the 50s was vegan. So go what? figure. I mean, yeah, she was vegan. I thought she was a nutcase. And I, I used to always think to myself, how did I ever get born into this family with these weird people? I mean, they don't eat, they don't eat canned foods. They don't eat processed foods. My grandmother is a vegan. She doesn't eat half of I just need three quarters of what the world eats. But uh, so, yeah, I grew up in a, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, I grew up in a really interesting family. But it certainly is how I live into my life today. So I was pretty lucky. That's, that's very cool. Are, are, are you vegan? <laughs> no, I like to say I'm fleegan. I'm a flexible vegan. I would say I'm primarily plant-based, but I'm not evangelical about yeah. it because I'm just not that. That's not my personality. So I'm flexible, but I, I gravitate to plant-based foods just because I like them better. Yes. Well, um, on a side note, my husband <laughs> has an intolerance to egg and dairy, and so I've had to uh -huh. like, learn to cook some vegan foods, and yet he, he eats hot dogs and, you know, vegan food. <laughs> so, Well, I will, I, can, I will connect you to lots of resources and great recipes from my brother's restaurants for you, okay. so I'll connect you up. Thank you. Well, I'm sort of jealous that you've created this scenario where you can really tap into your interest in changing the world and not just you know, by shouting, but active, actually leading students and creating programs that, that make a difference. So that that's amazing. Uh, speaking of this. I would say, yeah. just one thing, I would say that shouting, grow, having grown up in the 60s, actually doesn't work. That the thing that I find for changing things, the greatest thing and the greatest mindset that works is being able to ask a lot of questions. And the more questions you ask get you closer to what action you should probably be taking. Cultivating the right questions, to me, has always been the pathway towards trying to change something. I, I couldn't agree more, and certainly in a politically divided world, I wish that we came at more conversations with questions versus just pointing fingers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I know that you teach at least one course at Babson, and uh, when you have sort of a unique way of addressing societal change. So um, can you tell me a little bit about the class, or you may teach more than one class, but sort of the way you go about addressing this issue? Yeah. So we, uh, so I teach a class, but then I'll talk about how we influence every, actually every week. Uh, the class is called Leading for Social Value. And what I wanted to do is take Babson's core methodology of entrepreneurial thought and action, which is how we, how we navigate uncertainty and create things and solve things. It's the Babson way. And what I do is I invite five or six company executives and they have to be either in the C-suite or a CEO themselves. And I ask them to come and I start with the premise that Babson College has a mission that says we educate leaders to create economic and social value simultaneously. The question to you is, 
do you believe that businesses can do that? And and then also, what are you doing inside your companies to move the needle from doing it sequentially to simultaneously? So how are you and your company creating economic and social value? And they have to come up with a challenge real time that one of their teams is dealing with right now. So it doesn't have to be made up. It's a social economic challenge. They bring it to class and the class is an intense elective. So it's two and a half days. The first full day. I'll actually walk the executives and the class, and I also bring in uh, a mentor that is usually a Babson alum who's been through the class before, so they're already in the world and they understand these principles. And so what we do is we start the class with some frameworks, then each company executive has a half an hour where the whole class gets to interview that executive and not interview them about the challenge. The executive gets to pose the challenge and that's it. But the bulk of the interview is how do you lead around this inside your company? Because the class is around leadership. And you know, how do you lead? What are your tricks? What is the way you show up? How do you use yourself to move these issues inside of companies because this has moved from something that's been on the sidelines to more mainstream. And usually the people we've invited in are the people who are drivers of that. So we wanna understand how they lead around that. Then we break into groups and the company executives go into each, you know, to their company group, each each set of students will be assigned a company. So we have Target coming in and the Campbell Soup Company and a number, we have other companies coming in and they'll be the Target team and they will have to work and reframe that challenge. They have the rest of the day to work with the executive, then the executive flies back to wherever they go and the student works the whole second day on working through a social design process of reframing, prototyping, ideating to come up with a solution and mapping the environment. And then the third day of the class, they come out, they do a PowerPoint and they do a WebEx back to the company executive and team with the ideas to put that they want to push forward inside the company. So it's actually a very experiential course. I call it an ensemble educational experience because I bring in consultants, experts, the companies themselves, and the students so that the students have a full uh, suite of resources so that they can do the best job they can to be able to wrestle through these issues to get something of value to the company and for themselves. It sounds like an amazing experience. Uh, Can you share an example of one of the real-time challenges? Yeah, I can. Uh, No, no, no. I'm just trying, you know, uh, one of the, oh, so uh, this is a great one. The company is a global, probably the most sustainable global eyewear company in the world. And I never heard of of them, actually. I had never heard of this company. And I've heard a lot, I I know a lot about uh, the eyewear business. I had never heard of this company. And I got an opportunity to have a conversation with the CEO. And while we were talking, you know, I really understood the CEO's values, the values of the company and what they were doing. And I was blown away because I had read an amazing article in Fast Company about how this really was the most sustainable eyewear 
business on, uh, in the world, so to speak. I asked a lot of questions and, and he said, you know, I just wish other CEOs would do the same thing. All businesses should a- operate this way. And I said, well, first of all, I didn't know about your company. How do you even tell your customers and people about what you do? In a way, you have a responsibility to do that because you're one of these companies that are truly creating economic and social value simultaneously. And he said, that's exactly the issue I'm struggling with, that given our culture, we have not done a great job of telling our story. And we don't know how to tell our story. We were not sounding self-congratulatory. And we don't want to sound like that we're trying to be something we're not. But this is who we are. So the challenge for the class will be one of both culture and communications. What can we give back to this CEO and his leadership team around some steps they can take to authentically start to communicate it? But more importantly, while it's, yes, it's a communications channel challenge, it's more a cultural challenge of being able to be culturally, cultural storytellers in every aspect, not just your marketing, but that cultural storytelling becomes part of the DNA. So we're going to work with that. So cultural storytelling was sort of the, the crux of it. Well, that's what I said, what, what will happen. In all truth, that's, you know, in my mind, when I saw that, that was the challenge I saw. What will happen is he will present that challenge and the students will have to reframe it and we'll coach them and work with them on a reframing from what they believe it should be reframed. But I don't believe it's just a communications challenge. I believe that when you don't communicate something so fundamentally core to your business that you've got to figure out culturally why that's happening. And I believe if you shine a light on that and make that more present through storytelling and through your culture, that you'll actually gain far more value out of your brand and your brand promise, which they have an incredible brand promise. I mean, what they are promising is pretty extraordinary. So it's not only design of a wonderful set of glasses, it's that everything, 95% of everything they produce is recyclable and reused and their social mission is so strong. And I really, and this is my belief, Sarah, is that more companies that we can share this story, allow other people to see it's possible to do both. You don't have to forego purpose for profits. That's in fact, I love what Larry Fink said, and I will try to get it for you in this year's letter to CEOs, because one of the things that he said, which I will get to you right now, which I thought was just actually fantastic was, and hold on, I will get it right this second for you. He said, purpose and profit. Purpose is not the sole pursuit of profits, but the animating force for achieving them. Profits are in no way inconsistent with purpose. In fact, profits and purpose are inextricably linked. But I love the notion that purpose is the animating force for achieving them. And I think that this CEO in in this eyewear company understands that they're just not doing a great job or a job at all of communicating that. It sounds like what you're saying is that there is a broader benefit than just telling clients or potential clients about the history of the company or the the good work that they're doing that perhaps there's is it benefits for the employees or for impact influencing other similar organizations is is that the the takeaway or I th- 
Sure. And influencing behavior, if I, again, if I could go back to Patagonia, I think of the people who are, who really buy, you know, come, you know, people today don't, they don't buy what a company sells, they buy into a company, meaning they buy into who you are. And I mean, I buy into Patagonia, I buy their clothes, and I'm really aware and understand what they're trying to do. And I like to pride myself that I've raised my kids as good environmentalists and good stewards and pay attention to that. But I want to buy things that also educate me about what I need to know. Patagonia has educated me through the years about the environment and the uh, impact of certain uh, materials on the environment, particularly the apparel industry, you know, is a pretty, much of the apparel industry has been really tough on our environment, has been toxic. So when a Patagonia is a starts and is a company that from day one thinks about the materials it uses, where it's sourcing it, what they're making their clothes from and their footprint, that's really important because they're now showing me a way I can live into the world. And I think companies that don't communicate how they're living into the world actually miss an opportunity to educate their consumers to be better stewards of the environment. Because as I started, the UN Global Goals are everybody's problem. And if I can learn from some of the companies because of the behaviors they have, then they're actually educating me and also selling me an amazing product. Yeah, it sounds like there's just widespread benefits all around to to communicating that way. Exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about the the five F's or W's? I mean, the five W's front that you that you like to teach. I wanted to cover that. Oh, yeah, I know the three W's. So three W's. Um, I came up with this because a lot of students will come after going to a class and they'll say, oh my God, I really want to solve obesity. And I'll go, great, you know, let's sit down. And they'll say, well, I want to, I want to start this business or I want to start this not-for-profit. And they will have already, you know, because we have a real bias towards action of absent, they will already have a website. They will have already thought about it. And I'll go, whoa, 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 let's back up for a second. First of all, why do you want to solve it? So what I, I realize is a lot of our students have desired to solve something, but they don't actually really understand what the problem is. So I came up with these three W's of how I could get my students to understand how they could look at solving a social problem. So the first W is, I, you know, I love it. They come through the door and they're wondering about it, right? When they say they want to do something about obesity, they're wondering about it. They don't really know because they, you, first of all, they're not obese. They've never, particularly the people I've talked to, they don't know obese people and it's not a problem that they have. So they can't begin to imagine the problem that other people have. So I'll say, I want you to wonder about it. And when I when I say wonder, just go read about it. Talk to people. You don't have to do a lot of commitment at this point. Just wonder about it in your own way. And at that point, after wondering if you still have desire to do something, then I want you to wander. And I want you to really wander in that, uh, in that arena. I want you to go to some obesity clinics. I want you to talk to people who deal with obese people. I want you to talk to an obese person. I want you to wander in that world. I want you to go to big amusement parks uh, and see people who are obese 
and see what it's like for them to navigate the world and what they're eating and what their life looks like. And then if you still really believe you have a, that you want to solve uh, some aspect of this, then you need to wallow in it and you need to really get in it and research and talk and start looking at it from the problem set and really live within that problem set. When I say live within it, I mean really fundamentally understand what are the dilemmas and problems, not just not that, not just because it's unhealthy, but what is the life of an obese person and how they get there and understand it fundamentally. So then you will know where your lever is because there's so many ways you can get into solving that problem. What is your unique desire and skill and ability and momentum for wanting to intervene. And until you understand the three W's, wondering about it, wandering and wallowing, you really can't get there. So that was my easiest way to get my students to understand the level of commitment and curiosity they needed. They were just different levels of curiosity to get them to want to solve the social problem. What's so unique about it, though, is that you are asking students to self-assess and say, am I committed to this? Why am I important to this? And then start to build curiosity around it versus sort of coming at it with a sort of traditional academic methodology, which is, I say this is important, therefore you should consider it. Right, right. Their curiosity has to drive everything because you could go into obesity in so many different ways. And so, are they, you know, are they going to go back to medical school and study it? Are they going to, you know, there, you know, there's so many uh, entry points to understanding that dilemma. Uh, and so I just, those three W's to your point are a certain level of commitment so that they understand that solving a social problem is complex. Um, speaking of communications, I know that the Lewis Institute conducts these uncommon tables um, or the yes, habitat. Would you tell me a little bit about those and the, the purpose of those? Yeah. So the uncommon tables, we, we this came about because, you know, the uncommon tables to me are a way that we convene at the Lewis Institute and we have a number of them. And we really believe, to your point, when you said, how do you influence the Babson community? You know, I could bring in a great speaker once a month, but that's what we don't do. We decided that we wanted to create a habitat around people thinking this way so that we make sure we create uh, habits. So we have food soul and we have community table and once a month in Boston, once a month in Wellesley and once a month in New York City, Babson College hosts community table for entrepreneur, food entrepreneurs of all kinds. We come together and every one of our uncommon tables starts the same way. It's usually a dis, uh, it's the same time every month in the same place. And what we do is you go around the table and you basically ask people why they're there and you can come late, you can leave early, there are no rules. But it's a place for the community table. One of the uncommon tables is community table. That's around food entrepreneurship of all kinds. So people interested in wanting to be a food entrepreneur or disrupt the food sector, sit down at the table and then you just start having a conversation. Somebody might say, you know, I'm here today because I'm launching a product. I brought some for you to try. Would love you to taste it. What do you think? And then it will go from there and we never know where it's going to go. But it's a very, very emergent design, but a very intentional design. And the amount of content that comes out of a 
conversation like that focused for food entrepreneurs of all kinds is really quite potent. In fact, when we started Food Soul about seven years ago, there was no food presence at Babson. And in fact, we have been looked upon, Babson now has a reputation of having one of the top food programs in the country. And we don't have a food program. We have Rachel Greenberger, who uh, was the co-founder of Food Soul uh, and is the director of Food Soul. And she now has a course called Food Entrepreneurship. So that uncommon table, just by its being, created a lot of content. We have one on global healthcare entrepreneurship. We have one on youth entrepreneurship and engaging educators. We have one on called Financing the Future, not the future of finance, meaning how will we finance our future, whether it's looking at social finance and how are we going to really address the UN Global Goals. So we have all these uncommon tables. We have Good Business Friday, which is every Friday we bring in a speaker on some aspect of social innovation and the same thing. Students come and go when they want and it's a place where they get to really have deep conversations around the changing role of business today. And then we have grad impact hours every other week where we talk about uh, solutions that people have to problems. We use solutions journalism, which is a phenomenal resource, which I will let you know about, which is, was started by David Bornstein and others uh, who wanted to look at journalists around the world who are looking at solutions, not problems. And we use their cases all the time to show our students what's possible. So we provide a lot of opportunity just to cycle in and out of a conversation. We try to make something that's a big deal, a no big deal, so that people feel this is a natural part of their conversation. It's, it's great. I, you know, so my understanding of Food Soul is that it's basically like a think tank for entrepreneurs in the, in the food industry. And I, I guess what's, is that accurate? Yes, we actually call it an action tank because we start first with the action and people coming and talking about what we're doing. And out of that, we build content that actually goes into more of think pieces. So Rachel's written pieces on uh, the role of blockchain in the changing food landscape. We t do a lot on uh, farming and on supply chain and on the new retail environment and restaurants. So we tend to go where our students and those that come. Now, people that come to community table are, can be Babson alum, can be Babson students, or just food people from the communities where we are actually doing these community tables. So the content is really driven by sort of the wisdom of the group that's there. And Sarah, it's unbelievable. I mean, I can't tell you how much information is shared that I've had faculty sit in saying that just community table itself should be a course because the content exchanged and talked about in the 90 minutes is extraordinary. And Rachel does a fantastic job of facilitating that. This year, we were invited to Google Food Lab, where Rachel got to interact with a lot of people in the food space. And we've gone from, you know, not really having a food presence to Rachel has really given Babson an enormous presence in the food space in a very powerful way. That's awesome. I, I think one of the things that's particularly interesting to me is that it's not just about sustainability. It's really 
I mean, that's obviously a, a key component of it, but it's also for food innovators in all yes. areas. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have people making some amazing products. We have people starting restaurants and interesting concepts. We have people starting food trucks. It truly is uh, food entrepreneurship of all kinds. And what we like to say is, listen, we're all eaters and we're all interested. So some people just come to listen. And then after they've been there a while, realize they may want to do something in the food space. So we really give people, I think of community table as sort of a place that people also get to incubate themselves and possible ideas and socialize it through the group without any risk whatsoever. So it's a very low risk, but very high touch, high impact kind of convening. It's amazing. So I, I hope sometime I get to sit in on one of these. Um, oh, these I, I love that. I'm interested in both power and, and influence. So this is sort of a broad question, but what do you see as some of the power dynamics at play for social innovators? Well, the first and foremost is the power play, uh, and I hate to say it, is money, right? You know, there are people who want to start social businesses, and I don't mean not-for-profits, although I do think that business models are changing and there's lots of ways things get funded. But I still think that when you want to solve a social problem, it's really hard to get investment in that area because so solving social problems doesn't happen on a quarterly basis. I can't tell you I'm going to solve a particular community's problem and give you a quarterly report on how I'm doing on that because social problems are complex and are intertwined with many other problems. So I think the dilemma as we go forward is going to have to be a mindset shift. So social finance and impact investing are all new ways of trying to push that needle so that we can start to get new money into solving problems. I think philanthropy needs to be reimagined. I think the way philanthropy is done today is a legacy sort of perspective and that we have to look at philanthropy and investment and impact investment and social business and social, all kinds of social finance vehicles. We need to look at them differently and create new ones because most of the problems we're going to be solving are going to be social in nature and we need new mechanisms. So that's really tough. That's a hard one. And I know a lot of people are working on it uh, and a lot of really smart people are working on it. But the whole social finance and investing in impact and investing in success, pay for success programs are are a challenge, but, they're, but there's some you know positive and great opportunities in that space. So are you saying that just measuring success is sometimes challenging? Well, measuring success is always challenging, um, but also getting the investment you need to solve a problem. Philanthropy is not going to be the only way we can solve problems. You know, government, the private sector, the philanthropy sector are all going to have to work together in partnership to create new vehicles and new ways of investing in these social problems if we're going to be able to uh, reach the UN Global Goals by 20, you know, 2050. Yeah. Cheryl, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day because you're so interesting and smart. I guess I, I wanted to leave with a sort of action-oriented thought. You know, when you when you think about the, the concepts that we've talked about today and the really key issues that you and your students address, what would you say is sort of the biggest 
social change issue that individuals who might be listening to this should consider? And what are some ways that we can influence positive social change? I would say that people should really, I mean, you know, we're so focused on it here. And I know that the UN Global Goals are these 17 colorful squares that everybody sees when they look at them. I would encourage people to not think about the UN Global Goals as these huge big challenges that I believe everybody should look at where they think they can impact, whether it's their business or their startup or their whether they're in government, look at where they can actually uh, leverage their networks and what they're doing to make some kind of change. So the one thing I like to say to our students, they look at the wall and they go, oh my God, poverty, that's so hard. But if you go into any one of those global goals is places and levers that can be moved and changed. So don't be put off by how big the global goals are. Be energized by the opportunities that exist to solve those problems and be able to go at it where you have skill and you have desire and you have networks that can actually move that needle. So don't look at it as so big. Look at it as small actions that can be taken to actually address something that's big. But to not think of it that way, I think students get really overwhelmed like, oh my God, climate change. Well, you know, if you go inside and look at so many of the aspects that so many of the levers that they can use or places for intervention wherever they are, uh, there are places that everybody can move that needle. And we all have to believe we can do that. I love the idea of thinking about where you have both skill and interest and energy and maybe going deep there. Yeah. I mean, at Babson, we believe you start with desire. That's what that's at the heart of any entrepreneur. They start with a real desire to see something happen. Well, I hope that we can cultivate in our students that along that desire is also the desire to look at the biggest problems we have and what lever can they use to be able to address those. This is perfect. So, um, Cheryl, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. And um, I hope that we get to continue the conversation at a, at a later time. Oh, me too. And I look forward to meeting you soon. Thank you so much for your interest. Oh, great. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks, Cheryl. 